Well, I'm very glad to be here with you. It's been a while, I think, since I've preached at Loft. I'm more often in the chapel service. And since it's been a while since I've preached at Loft, I feel a need to talk to you about one rather trivial thing that may distract you if I don't talk about it, which is this big thing that I wear. I am aware that most people do not show up at Loft wearing the big Genevan gown. I know that. And for one thing, it tends to get really warm in here, and, you know, these things do not breathe. So it's, it's not the smartest uh, garment in many ways. But I always wear it when I preach, always, and this is why. When I was getting ready to come to Calvin to teach here in 1999, I was a member of a wonderful little church in Cambridge, Massachusetts, First United Presbyterian Church of Cambridge. And it's the church that has been the most home-like for me of any church I've ever been part of. And when I was getting ready to leave, they gave me this gown. And when they gave it to me, the pastor put it on me, and we had this little ceremony, and as he put it on, he said, you must always wear this when you preach so that you remember that you are not speaking on your own behalf, but you are there from the church. You are there from us, and we are with you. So I always do. So it's not because I'm so formal or I'm so uptight, although I must confess that for women, the whole robe thing does solve all the clothing problems about what in the world (laughs) do I wear. It's a real relief not to have to think about that, but, but that's not why I wear it here tonight. I wear it because my pastor told me to, so here I am. So we are going to look tonight at 2 Samuel chapter 13. You might want to uh, look for that in your your Bibles. Um, So some weeks ago, I I got the invitation to preach for this service and was told that I drew David as my person. Woohoo, David. I mean, that's exciting. But it's also a little daunting. The Old Testament includes 61 chapters of narrative about David. 61. And then there are more than 70 psalms attributed to David. 15% of the Old Testament is David. And I was asked to pick, what story do you want? So um, I, picked a, I picked a hard story. I picked a story that is violent, and it is disturbing, and it is unpleasant. And I need you to know that up front, because I don't want to spring that on anybody. Uh, there is sexual assault in this story. And when you hear it, you should be disturbed. That is the right reaction. I realize that for some of you, that may be more disturbing and more difficult than for others. But we're going to read this text as the word of God to us. This is not a story that we read because it's sensational. It's a story we read because God says, you may not close your eyes to things like this. You have to hear these things, and you have to learn how to respond to them. So let's ask God to help us as we open his word. Holy Spirit, come to us and speak to us. May this word that we are about to hear be living and active. May it take root in our hearts. May our hearts be good soil to receive this word. And may it bear fruit in our lives. We pray it in the name of Jesus Christ, the word made flesh. Amen. I'm going to read through verse 29, verses 1 through 29. Hear the word of God. Some time passed. David's son Absalom had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. 
And David's son, Amnon, fell in love with her. Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of David's brother, Shemiah. And Jonadab was a very crafty man. He said to him, O son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Jonadab said to him, Lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, Let my sister Tamar come and give me something to eat and prepare the food in my sight so that I may see it and eat it from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, Please let my sister Tamar come and make me a couple of cakes in my sight so that I may eat from her hand. Then David sent home to Tamar, saying, Go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house, where he was lying down. She took dough, kneaded it, made cakes in his sight, and baked the cakes. Then she took the pan and set them out before him, but he refused to eat. Amnon said, Send out everyone from me. So everyone went out. Then Amnon said to Tamar, Bring the food into the chamber so that I may eat from your hand. So Tamar took the cakes she had made and brought them into the chamber to Amnon, her brother. But when she brought them near him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, Come, lie with me, my sister. She answered him, No, my brother, do not force me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do anything so vile. As for me, where could I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be as one of the scoundrels in Israel. Now therefore I beg you, speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. But he would not listen to her, and being stronger than she, he forced her and lay with her. Then Amnon was seized with a very great loathing for her. Indeed, his loathing was even greater than the lust he had felt for her. Amnon said to her, get out. But she said to him, no, my brother, for this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. He called the young man who served him and said, put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. Now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves, for this is how the virgin daughters of the king were clothed in earlier times. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her. But Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she was wearing. She put her hand on her head and went away, crying aloud as she went. Her brother Absalom said to her, Has Amnon your brother been with you? Be quiet for now, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. So Tamar remained a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. When King David heard of all these things, he became very angry, but he would not punish his son Amnon because he loved him, for he was his firstborn. But Absalom spoke to Amnon neither good nor bad, 
for Absalom hated Amnon because he had raped his sister Tamar. After two full years, Absalom had sheep shearers at Baal Hazor, which is near Ephraim, and Absalom invited all the king's sons. Absalom came to the king and said, Your servant has sheep shearers. Will the king and his servants please go with your servant? But the king said to Absalom, No, my son, let us not all go, or else we will be burdensome to you. He pressed him, but he would not go, but gave him his blessing. Then Absalom said, If not, please let my brother Amnon go with us. The king said to him, Why should he go with you? But Absalom pressed him until he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. Absalom made a feast like a king's feast. Then Absalom commanded his servants, Watch when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say to you, Strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not be afraid. Have I not myself commanded you? Be courageous and valiant. So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons rose, and each mounted his mule and fled. This is the word of the Lord. Now you may be thinking that for um, a sermon about David, there was not a lot of David in that story, right? It's really a story about his family, his children, three of his children, But David is going to be our focus, and so our focus has to be on verse 21. When King David heard of all these things, he became very angry. And then the rest of that verse, if if you have more in that verse in the version you're looking at, there's probably a footnote in your copy. And if you don't have any more there, there's probably a footnote with some more that could be there. So the rest of it in verse 21 says, He would not punish his son Amnon because he loved him, for he was his firstborn. Almost certainly that section is a later explanatory addition because without it, it's just so mysterious. What do you mean? He was angry and then nothing happens. David heard about this and he does nothing. So I understand the need to fill that in. And it may even be a somewhat authoritative version of filling it in, but at least some versions just leave us hanging there with an empty space. What did David do if he was so angry? And whenever we read the Hebrew Bible, those places where something's not there that ought to be, you have to notice those places, those, those significant gaps And this is a very significant gap. David does nothing to Amnon. Why? How can a father know that such an evil thing has happened in his household to his daughter by his son and do nothing? Well, the first answer, the cynical answer, is because that's the way it almost always happens. Many of you have been listening to the news the last few weeks. I didn't know this story was going to break when I picked this text, but for the last several weeks we've been hearing about Harvey Weinstein, who for decades, 
for decades has been preying on young women in ways that are a lot like this. Invite them to a meal. Use some trusted people as intermediaries. Suddenly, in unexpected ways, they find that they're alone in the room with you. That's not what this was supposed to be. How did that happen? It is exactly the same mode of operation that we see Amnon using. And this man did this for decades. Now, here in the 21st century, when we think we care so much about women's safety and rights, and lots of people knew, and he was never prosecuted. It's not the first time we read a story like this in the scripture either. There's a terrifying story about the rape of Dinah, Jacob's daughter. Jacob is also passive. He does nothing. Why? Why does he do nothing? He's afraid he might provoke a war. He's worried about what might happen. And again, it's left to her brothers, Simeon and Levi, who go out and kill a whole bunch of people in vengeance for the rape of their daughter. And that has all sorts of crazy ramifications, too. There's the story of Joseph, who is attacked by Potiphar's wife, and he manages to get away. He's faster than Potiphar's wife. He's probably stronger. But he's still thrown in jail for years because no one believes that he was not the aggressor. And interestingly, what what Tamar says in this story is almost word for word what Joseph says to Potiphar's wife. All through this story, there are little moments that remind us of other stories in Scripture. Other stories are being quoted to tell us this is a pattern. This happens over and over. I've spent a lot of my life in recent years on the book of Judges. The book of Judges has one of the most terrifying stories of sexual violence against a woman that there is in the whole Bible, where a woman is gang-raped to death because of the cowardice of her husband, who throws her out the door to placate a crazy mob of people. And then when she is found dead in the morning after a night of violence, he cuts her body up and distributes it to the people of Israel and says, help me avenge this. What the book of Judges tells us is that that the way women are treated is a sign of something. Because at the very beginning of the book of Judges, there's a different kind of story about a woman. There's a woman named Aksa, whose father, Caleb, gives her a holy, righteous, God-honoring husband, and the husband and the father together cooperate for her protection and her safety. And she flourishes in the land. That's how Judges starts. And then Judges ends with these stories of horror. And all the way through, there are lots of stories about women in the book of Judges, and women keep being put in more and more and more jeopardy as you go through the whole book. And one of the messages in the book of Judges is, If your society is God-honoring, if your society is obeying God's will, if you are living according to God's law, women should not be afraid in your society. Women should be able to live securely. That's a mark of being a God-honoring world. And when that's not the case, when horrible things happen to women unchecked by anybody, 
That's a good sign that your society is out of whack. You are not, in fact, in tune with God's will, with God's word, with God's law. It's like the book of Judges presents the, the fate of women as kind of the canary in the coal mine, letting you know everything's going to pieces here. And this is a really easily noticed thing if you'll just pay some attention. So when we come here to 2 Samuel, the center of David's reign, he reigns for 40 years, and this is probably right near the center. And we see this happening. And David is silent. We know there is a problem in Israel. We know that we have wandered away from God's will in some significant ways. I think there's a second way in which, a second way of thinking about why David keeps silent. The story immediately prior to this, in chapters 11 and 12, is the story of David's adultery with Bathsheba. He commits adultery with Bathsheba, and this, this story often does get into your Sunday school curriculum. The rape of Tamar probably wasn't in your Sunday school curriculum, but, but you, you may have heard about the Bathsheba story in Sunday school. So he sees her, he thinks she's very beautiful. He seduces her, which is not hard to do when you're the king. And she gets pregnant, but she's married. And her husband is a soldier in his army, so he arranges for Uriah to be placed in the most dangerous part of the battle. Quite a few other people die unnecessarily as a result of this maneuver. And he effectively murders Uriah to cover up the fact that he's gotten Uriah's wife pregnant. And then he marries Bathsheba, takes her to his house. And there's a famous scene there when Nathan the prophet comes and challenges David about this. And shows him his sin, and he repents, and he asks God to forgive him, but Nathan says, but there will be consequences. The sword is coming into your house. There will be death in your house. And indeed, the little boy born to Bathsheba dies, despite David's prayers. So that moment, the Bathsheba moment, is it's like the pivot moment in the middle of the David story. Forty years of reigning over Israel, here quite close to the 20-year mark, he has this experience with Bathsheba. And the question then is, at the end of that story, well, now what are you going to be and do, David? You made a, a big mess of a lot of things. Now what? So the first 20 years, David's walking with God pretty consistently. He makes a few missteps, but, but mostly we see him on the ascent the kingdom is getting more stable. The kingdom is growing. He is getting more power. He is developing as a king. And then we hit this moment. So now what? And the story that we just read, that's the next step. So you know that two points are necessary to determine a line, right? If we're deciding, where do I go from this pivot point? What's the next direction? Well, he has just determined that. He has just established his trajectory with his passivity in the face of evil, evil in his own house. The thing is that forgiven sin still has consequences. Forgiven sin 
is forgiven, yes. But if you've damaged people in your sin, they're still damaged once you're forgiven. If you've damaged yourself by your sin, you're still damaged once you're forgiven. Forgiveness is not a magic pill that suddenly undoes all the consequences of your bad behavior. When you do wrong things, those wrong things bear fruit. And in this case, the fruit that seems to be blossoming in David's life is a a moral cowardice. He doesn't seem to think he has much moral standing. Who am I, after all, to call anyone else to account? And is what Amnon did all that different from what David did? It's a few steps worse, but it's the same basic impulse. In my Religion 131 class, we read uh, an article that Uh, or a sermon that uses this really famous quote, there but for the grace of God go I. It's a good thing to think when you're looking at some other sinful person. There but for the grace of God go I. I could be messing up in that way too. You see someone else who's just doing something horrible and instead of immediately going to judgment, you think, if the circumstances in my life were just a little different... I might be doing that sinful thing. If the circumstances in my life were different, maybe I'd be somewhere with an air rifle shooting out a hotel window. It's hard to imagine what would get you to a place like that. But how much of the stuff in my life that I think of as my virtue is actually just that God has hedged me around with a community of people who exert so much social pressure on me to be good that I sort of have to be. And if all that pressure were taken away, what would I be? What would I do? If that gracious presence of all of you people who would, you know, really think I should maybe lose my job if I did horribly sinful things really openly and and extravagantly, if all that were taken away, if there were no consequences that I could see, what would I become? That's a good attitude to have. There but for the grace of God go I. But you can push it a little too far. You can push it to the point where you just don't hold anybody accountable for sin because, well, you know, we all have sinful impulses. Well, after all, everybody sins. I sin, you sin. I was just in an ordination exam and heard something kind of like that from a well-meaning future pastor asked a question about moral guidance. Well, we always have to remember that we're sinners too and we, we can't be too judgmental. Can you see how easily that becomes? We're just going to let evil happen and we won't name it. We're just going to let wrong things occur, and we won't fight them. The thing is that David, David doesn't go to war again after Bathsheba either. Remember, he gets into trouble with Bathsheba because his whole army's away, and he's sitting home in Jerusalem. It's not that he's too old. His general is just as old as he is, and he keeps fighting into the... uh, Book of First Kings, he's, he's still fighting. No, David, David could still be on the battlefield, but he's not. He's become a passive person. 
He no longer stands up to fight against the things he thinks are wrong. And not only does he not do it in war, he doesn't do it in his family. Now, if there's anybody who is supposed to be doing this work, it's David. He's not just the father in this story, he's the king. And what Amnon did is against several laws in the Levitical law. Now, it's, it's a little bit complicated, in fact, to figure out now just how should he be punished given the Levitical laws. Should he be put to death? That's one possibility. Or should he only be required to give Tamar a very large sum of money so that perhaps she could start a new life? Perhaps she could be attractive as a marriage prospect to someone. But he's supposed to do something. There is supposed to be a consequence. And it's David's job as the king to be exercising judgment, to make, be making a decision. Well, now, there are a few different ways we could understand the situation, and maybe he doesn't want to execute his son, but nothing? No consequences at all? We also want to say that, yes, we're all sinners. Yes, even yes, we're all sexually broken. There's no, there is no one in North American society today who's not sexually broken. There may have been a time in the history of the world where people could actually grow up with a certain innocence sexually, but we are not in that society. So all of us have, have thoughts of which we should repent. All of us have been exposed to knowledge that we shouldn't have yet if we're not yet married. All of us are broken in all sorts of ways. That does not mean that when you see someone being sexually violent, you say, well, I'm broken too. No. you got to name it. You have to stand up and say, that's not right. You even have to stand up and say it if it's going to cost you a little something. David might have to pay It might make his household a little bit more awkward for him. If he's disciplining his oldest son, the one he hopes will be his heir, it might make a lot of things different and difficult for his family. But when we see evil being done, one of our jobs as Christian people, and certainly David's job as God's anointed king, is to name evil and to resist it. We resist it in ourselves. We name and resist it anywhere people are being mistreated, anywhere people are being oppressed, anywhere people are the victims of injustice. That's our job, and that was his job. A third reason I think David doesn't do anything is that his idea of love is sentimental. He has a very sentimental understanding of love. In 1 Kings 1... Chapter 6, there's a, a little verse about his, uh, at the time, by First Kings 1, his oldest remaining son. Uh, he's had a lot of death in his family by then. But Adonijah, and First Kings 1, 6 says about Adonijah, his father had never at any time displeased him by asking, why have you done thus and so? David thought the way to show love to his sons was never to challenge anything they did. Never to displease them. Never to say, what are you doing? That's a bad idea. Stop that. No wonder they end up just following everything he does instead of what he taught them because he didn't teach them anything at all. David thinks that love 
is only affirmation. And you know, that's a pretty popular view in our culture right now. You say something critical about someone, you say, you know, I think that what you're doing is self-destructive. You know, I think what you're doing is outside of God's plan for your life, and it's not going to lead you where you want to go. It's gonna, it may feel good right now, but it's going to lead you to a place that is not flourishing. And you will be told, you're not affirming me. Who made you my judge? You'll be told that you're not loving. You'll even be told that you're not much like Jesus because, after all, Jesus never said anything critical to anybody. These are obviously people who never read the New Testament. But, <laughs> but, but in popular culture, there is an image of Jesus as the great affirmer. And that's what David is doing. His understanding of what it is to be loving here. Unconditional affirmation. But that's not what love is. That's not how God loves us. God loves you so much. He loves you so much that he is determined to erase every sin in your life. He loves you so much that he is going to do major surgery on you to extract everything that is not good for you. No matter how precious it is to you, he is going to remove it from your life. He loves you so much, he is not going to stop working on you until you become the full human being he wants you to be, and that is going to be a painful experience. C.S. Lewis has a little joke. He says people sometimes say to him, but God is love. Why would he ever hurt me? And he says, have you never been to the dentist? Right? Love does not mean you don't give pain. Love does not mean you don't express judgment. Love does not mean that you tell lies in order to let people still feel safe and happy. Love means you tell the truth. Love means you care enough to confront what's wrong and broken. David is unwilling to do that. Real love corrects, and real love takes sides. David won't do that either. So we have here tension between his three children. And rather than recognizing that there is one person amongst the three who is guilty and two who are not, David's, I'm not taking sides here. Have you ever been in that kind of a a situation? Maybe you've been bullied by someone. Maybe you're being mistreated by someone in your circle of friends. And, and, And your mutual friends say, not going to take sides here. And you think, wait a minute. Excuse me, we're not equally culpable here. I, I'm being beaten up, and you're just standing there saying you don't want to take sides? In this case, his daughter has been raped by her brother, and David's not taking sides. That is inappropriate. You know, in the work that I, I did on the book of Judges, one of the questions that comes up all the time when you read Judges is, who are the people in Judges who kind of prefigure Jesus? Which of these people really show us what Jesus is like, who Jesus is going to come to be? I think most of the Judges actually are showing us something about what Israel is like. But there is one person I'm pretty confident is a type of Christ, a a signal of what Jesus is like, and that's that poor concubine who is raped to death because her husband, her spouse, betrays her to evil ones. 
through his own cowardice, through his own sin, and she pays for his sin. And her body is then broken and passed out to all God's people. Now that sounds like Jesus to me. Jesus takes the side of the ones who are broken. Jesus takes the side of the ones who are oppressed. Jesus takes the side of the ones who are assaulted. Jesus takes the side of the ones who are raped, the ones who are tricked into horrible situations and don't know what to do to get out of them. Jesus is there on their side. And if David were the true forerunner of Jesus he's supposed to be, he should know which side to be on here. Because the great good news that's not in this text, but that follows from this text, the great good news is that our king is not David. Our king is Jesus. David's greater son. He's the perfect king. He's the king who does all these things right. He's the king who is never passive, ever. In fact, since Jesus is God, he is completely in act at all times. Everything Jesus can be, he is. He is loving you fully and completely at this moment, right now. There is no, no higher level of love that he could possibly achieve in order to love you more tomorrow. Right now, his love is fully engaged, fully pouring out on you. He is reigning right now in heaven. He is in charge of your life right now, and he is in charge in love. And if you are a person who has been treated with injustice, he is going to make that right because he's the judge who always gives a righteous sentence. If you're a person who has been treated with violence, he's going to make that right too. In our story, Absalom tries. He tries to step in and do what David should have done. He tries to comfort his sister. He tries to take her into his home. He tries to avenge her and make her feel safe. But the result of that is civil war. David and Absalom go to war with each other. And there's no peace in Israel for the rest of the, the saga of David. Just war. But Jesus is a king who is the prince of peace. He's a, a prince of peace who can use his sword in a way that does not lead to disorder and chaos but leads to the right establishment of a holy kingdom. Jesus is the king who can transform you into a person who can, in fact, speak the truth in love. He can transform you into an agent of his power, his authority, so that you can have the courage and the strength to do what's right and just in the world. You cannot do that on your own power. If David couldn't, you sure can't. But what we have that David didn't have, we have the promise of the Holy Spirit uniting us to our Lord and King Jesus, giving us a power David never dreamt of. So put your trust in a different king. And let's be grateful that these Old Testament folks who point forward are not the end of the story.